The antidote. 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 You're listening to the antidote with Dave Hawkins. With Christian music that doesn't suck. got the antidote with dave hawkins have you ever heard a band that you thought would crush every other band in the music scene then there were the other fans critics and record labels that thought the same way but then something terrible happened and pushed the artist off the rails that's not the whole story about the band luxury but they did have a brutal car crash that changed them and might have changed the outcome of the band itself 
I got tuned into the music of Luxury with their 1995 label debut, Amazing and Thank You. Flaming Youth flames on, and most of tonight's playlist comes from that release. The good news is that Luxury never disappeared and brought out an exceptional album in 2019. Now, what I mentioned earlier is just a tiny part of Luxury's story, and we'll hear much more as The Antidote meets with Matt Hinton, who knows all the details. Let's bring Matt up to explain about the roots of Luxury, along with one of their songs called South. Matt Hinton is both a filmmaker and a band member of Luxury, and he's come to The Antidote. Matt, good to have a chance to speak with you. Likewise, thank you. I always like to start an interview with the roots of a band. Can you give us a brief rundown as to how and when Luxury got together? I can. Um, Some of this will be uh, hearsay, because I wasn't in the band from the very beginning. I didn't join until 99. But I know the information, so I can convey it. So the, the earliest days of the band... It's made up of two brothers, uh, Jamie and Lee Bozeman, so they already knew each other, Uh, and then bass player Chris Foley and drummer Glenn Black. They all wound up, for various reasons, wound up at a small Christian liberal arts college in in northeast Georgia in a town called Tokoa, and it was a pretty conservative uh, environment, and... um, One that they didn't necessarily, I think it was a bit of a culture shock for them uh, to be in that type of environment where there was sort of a presumption that people weren't listening to secular music, for example, and and that was not really their experience. So these four dudes who really did not have a lot in common musically um, because they were in the environment that they were in, and we're talking in sort of 92 or 93 thereabouts, um, they show up to the school at various times, and you got one guy, the singer, Lee, who was, you know, into stuff like the Smiths and Depeche Mode, that kind of stuff, and had fairly narrow tastes, actually, but that were along those lines. And then you had this drummer, Glenn, who, in a notable way, was into things like Kiss and Led Zeppelin and heavy metal and that type of stuff, like those two guys do not belong in a band together. Like there's no way that you would say like a Morrissey fan belongs in a band with a Kiss fan. (laughs) So then you've got Chris, the bass player, who is into hardcore punk bands, particularly uh, stuff like Minor Threat and Fugazi and... Uh, Rites of Spring and stuff like that, largely sort of DC punk kind of stuff was where he was at. He had played in punk bands throughout high school and um, uh, was not into metal and was not into the Smiths. And so he was doing his own thing. And then Jamie, the other guitar player, was sort of more of a college rock guy, I would say, kind of U2 and and that kind of stuff, had some overlap with his brother Lee. But in any event, it just goes to show, being in an environment like that, it's like you're looking for anything. In those days, as Chris mentioned, you're looking for anybody with a band t-shirt or a, or wearing Doc Martens or something like that. 
back in a, in the era when what you wore actually conveyed something about about who you were in a way that's probably strange to younger people these days, but it's very much the case in the 80s and early 90s. So, um, you know, if they wanted to play music, they kind of said to each other, it's either going to be us or nobody. So that was sort of how it, how it started.
then it makes me really curious, what did the Christian college think about what this band was doing? Yeah, they were not in love with what they were doing. Um, as I understand, they got kicked off of campus, like in terms of they would like rehearse in empty rooms here and there, got kicked off campus and um, wound up going and forming a venue, which wound up being a place that they could rehearse. But they created a venue in the in the small town um, that was sort of designed to draw both kind of local kind of towny kids on one hand who hadn't really heard that kind of music before, but also was sort of bringing those people together with with the kids at the school who certainly hadn't heard that kind of music before because it was yeah it was not the kind of Christian rock stuff. Evidently, the school sort of tried to shut them down, but they had to remind the school that it was off campus and they had had nothing to do with it. So I think it was a sort of a tense relationship, to put it mildly. Well, that's the point, because here we are. We have luxury with Christian members, but the band never wanted to be labeled as being Christian. What was the aversion? I don't know. I mean, I guess I don't even think it was an aversion as such, at this point, it's a complete cliche to say, well, we're Christians, but it's not a Christian band. But if you just listen deeply at all, like you see that, that, that there is at least to some degree an agenda in that band. Even if it's just like thanking God in the, in the liner notes or whatever, there's something there. There's like a tip off there. With luxury, there wasn't that at all. And I think that it was just like that was not... Um, like Lee's the vocalist and writer of the lyrics. And I think that he, that it just didn't even occur to him really to use his lyrics, certainly not in an evangelistic way, but not even in a way where he was processing spiritual or theological concerns. It was more sort of emotional stuff that was being dealt with and stories that were being told, I think, particularly on the first record there was something that, an event that occurred that caused him to be maybe a little bit more reflective uh, and contemplative in his lyrics after that first record. But certainly in the first record, originally the band was called The Shroud before they were luxury. So they released a couple of Shroud records. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there were tapes that were being passed around or whatever. And those were reflective of the first luxury record. So I think that's part of like what's maybe worth noting is that that the first luxury record was really kind of like the third or fourth like they'd been through it a few times not on labels or anything like that but they had and there were a couple of songs from that shroud material that wound up on the first luxury record so anyway for those first few records there wasn't like i defy anybody to look at that first luxury record and find the sort of Christian content to it. But again, not like in a defiant way, but in just like a, no, that's just not what I'm interested in writing about uh, for whatever reason. It wasn't because he wasn't serious about his faith or anything like that. I would say historically, I would say that this band has been, as individuals have been far more serious about their faith than most Christian bands that I've interacted with. Anyway, it's just, I think everybody was coming from... uh, I mean, certainly in the case of Chris, was not coming from, like in high school, was not coming out of like a Christian scene. He was involved in the sort of general punk scene. And 
you know, his goal was like to have luxury playing in the kinds of clubs that he was used to playing in high school, which were not Christian venues at all. And that was exactly what happened. Mainly, luxury played in regular venues. And it was only after a while that, um, you know, when you have Christian friends who are maybe opening a venue or something like that, you wind up playing that venue. And then you begin to have a reputation of being a Christian band or something, even if it was not intended.
Champagne, a perfect dreamy tune that's indie rock and psychedelia rolled all into one. Matt Hinton fills us in about the next steps of luxury and how fans could sometimes misunderstand their lyrics, which is exactly what happened with the song Touch. I get that, but of course it was the Christian scene where luxury got its big break by going to Cornerstone in 94. Yeah. Because that festival is really the center of alternative Christian music at that point in time. Yeah, for sure. No, you're right. It's not. It's a little bit cagey or a little bit sneaky to say that it wasn't like there was no... In, um, I, mean, I think that they didn't want that, but it was sort of a last-ditch effort at the time. Luxury was seeing other bands getting deals and kind of like, what? It's like, why are we not... What's going on? Like, what's the problem? And I think, like, wanted to do this like this is like the goal for life kind of thing in this case it was that band prayer chain who said hey y'all should come up and play and we'll sort of sneak y'all in more or less call y'all our roadies (laughs) and uh, and y'all play on that like an impromptu stage and uh no they're a bunch of cool people and people would really like y'all up there and you know be a good opportunity and so forth Luxury did not go up to get signed, but the offer was made. And so then, like, you're at the crossroads. That was a sort of a critical moment for the band where they made one choice instead of another. You know, who among us can say what would have happened had they not accepted the offer that was made to them by tooth and nail? Uh, but they did. And, and you also, you have to understand that tooth and nail at that point you know, they, in part, were talking about this film and about luxury. And in the film, there's a sense in which maybe Tooth and Nail could come off as kind of like, not the bad guy exactly, but almost a deal with the devil kind of a situation. Uh, I mean, inevitably, that's just how kind of narratives work, I think. But I think the reality is that, you know, they were just doing their thing and... They were a bunch of kids, slightly older than the guys in luxury. So they were making it up as they went. They had only released just a handful of, of albums at that point. And luxury had seen the first Starflyer 59 record, which looked cool. Like it had like a silver, like shiny silver cover, which was sort of a bold kind of thing at the time, especially. And it seemed like the first kind of record in that Christian market that felt very contemporary. Like it felt like the alternative music that was really happening at the time. There were there were hints of a lot of like shoegazy kind of thing, a little bit of like um, the first Smashing Pumpkins, like you could hear that in there. But then it was like the sort of breathy vocals that was more typical of sort of English 4AD type stuff. And so we were hearing all of the reference points that made sense to us. And it's like, oh, well, if they'll sign that kind of band, who didn't really, at the time, didn't really seem like a Christian band particularly, and the way that they were posturing themselves at the time was, yeah, we're not really trying to be a Christian band, but we are drawing from this crowd because we see that there's a lot of of talented bands that we wouldn't want to miss out on. But, you know, we have every intention of getting you into regular record stores and in regular press, like, you know, Magnet or, you know, those kinds of regular music magazines. Um, And I don't think they were being deceptive. I think that's exactly what they wanted to do and were attempting to do. But 
Brandon, the guy that owned Tooth and Nail, you know, his background was in the Christian scene. And so he's going to, you know, naturally going to fall back on his experience and the contacts that he had, which happened to involve Christian distribution. And so the records wound up in Christian bookstores. And I mean, it's all, it's all kind of muddy and it's, it's not quite right to say that luxury deliberately signed with a Christian label because it wasn't clear to luxury, nor I think to Brandon exactly what that label was going to be and what they were going to be about. Like, I think he was, you know, doing his best and, and, uh, I personally have no gripe with that at all. I guess for Christians, these song topics from luxury could be a surprise because, you know, they would do things like exploring sexuality, right. which was just something that, you know, any type of a Christian artist would normally not do. Particularly in the early 90s, yeah. The band must have taken flack for that. Yeah, there was some stuff, but, you know, like, I mean, part of it is that because a lot of the shows were not in Christian venues, it wasn't that big of a thing. Or people would try to interpret songs differently, like the song uh, Touch, where the chorus is, I'm going to touch him, touch him, I'll be kind. Uh, people said, oh, well, that means he wants to touch God, whatever that even means. So they would interpret it, I guess they thought they were interpreting it charitably. Um, and just got it wrong completely. Though Lee suggests that he didn't really consider sort of sexual connotation to that. He just meant it was just a guy he wanted to fight was the context of that. So maybe there was some of that, but I know, I mean, I don't think I've ever met anybody who cares less about uh, any kind of pushback along those lines than Lee, even though he was not the, quote, the punk one in the band has more of a punk attitude, really more than kind of anyone I've ever met, probably. This is Matt Hinton from Luxury, and you have found The Antidote with Dave Hawkins.
hear more about Lee because he has this amazing rock star stage persona, but at the same time, he has this reserved intensity that's intimidating. I'd like to hear your thoughts, yeah. Matt. Like, does one of those sides dominate Lee? He doesn't intimidate me. <laughs> that's a good thing as a bandmate. <laughs> uh, so which side dominates? Well, I mean, in, in person... I would not call him an outgoing person, particularly. He's uh, very reserved, very thoughtful, and a very practical person. Very unlike, yeah, what I guess is like a persona uh, when he performs or performed. We haven't performed in a while. So, yeah, I mean, it's like he just sort of puts on a new, a different, you know, it comes out in flashes every so often, like in, with him personally. But... Uh, and when we're playing music together, it'll come out. But um, personally, no, he's very reserved. You know, you hear that all the time about performers. Oh, I'm really shy or whatever. And sometimes it's hard to believe them. But it certainly is the case with Lee. I don't know if shyness is the word for it. But yeah, just very reserved. It's funny how you brought up that punk aspect. And I've even heard people describe Luxury as a punk band. That's the last label I would ever put onto the music. Yeah, right. Well, I would say that there's that influence in there. And I would say that um, it comes across in a live context vastly more than it does on record. And, And certainly it would be more of a tradition of sort of brash, snotty kind of punk along the lines of the Buzzcocks. Or something like that. that okay. There mm-hmm. are a little bit more than like Black Flag or something. So it's definitely got a punk spirit in there. But no, I would never, if somebody asked me what the band was, I would never say it was a punk band. I asked Matt about Lee's Rockstar Manor. Now we'll hear it on the luxury song Rockstar. Yeah. 
during the 90s era of luxury, that's the time where song topics sometimes could be considered maybe confrontational or controversial. Do you think that the band was actually setting out to push people's buttons? Um, to a degree, yeah. I mean, Lee in particular, I think, uh, I think he would come up to a line and most people, when they realized that they had gotten to that line, would probably take a step back from the line and he's more likely to step over it and think that that was pretty funny <laughs> um, to sort of get a rise out of people. Like, it was all about provocation, not only lyrically, but in terms of performance. Um, sometimes it felt like he and the band in general, um, and certainly by my time in the band, like still felt this way, that there was a sense in which we were performing against the audience almost as much as performing for the audience. I don't know if that makes any sense, but... That's an interesting viewpoint. I never would have yeah. thought about a band doing that. Right. With the goal of winning them over, but every so often you'd wind up in a context where people were kind of skeptical or appeared to be or not interested. And it's like, I don't want to say they're the enemy at that point, but it's... Um, I don't know how to describe it, but um, yeah, real provocation, real like making the audience uncomfortable, which Lee was very good at. I think that the idea was like better to be hated than to be ignored or found boring or, or whatever. And um, so there's a lot of like that button pushing, but at the same time, you know, like Lee was like in his bones was really into like these sort of pretty pop songs and like, you know, beautiful melodies and stuff like that. That was what he loved. And so that stuff always sort of poked through as well. There was always something winsome in it. Even though like when you saw them, it's like, I can't figure this guy out. Like, what's he about?
Kill the Famous, another song found on Luxury's Amazing and Thank You album. A great album that led off a string of excellent releases from the band. Those albums come up next week on The Antidote's second installment of this feature on Luxury. Matt Hinton returns for more of our talk about the music of Luxury, and we'll also hear about his feature-length documentary, Parallel Love, the story of a band called Luxury. He'll speak about the van wreck that left members of the band with life-threatening injuries, their return to music, and how three of Luxury's members became Orthodox priests. Yeah, it's quite a story. I love having brilliant interviewees, and Matt gives several thoughtful comments about the Christian music scene in Luxury's provocative song, Pink Revenge. Have a good one, and come back next week for more from The Antidote. You know, I've brought up this point with other artists. People expect to hear safe music coming from an artist with a Christian faith. Right. Should music be safe? Uh, no. I mean, no, I, don't, I think that's really bad. I mean, I think that there's a reason for it, and I don't think that like there's an enemy in this, but I think that the way that I've perceived it is that the very beginnings and growth of the Christian music industry was precisely about safety. Even though the the artists themselves may not have been as concerned with that or that wasn't their primary motive, I think that as an industry that that was precisely what caused its growth. And what I mean by that is this. In the beginning, in the late 70s, early 80s, you started to have, and especially by the time of in America, in the time of like Tipper Gore, who created the this uh, parents, what is it called? Parents Music Resource Center or something like that, which started like putting labels, like these parental warning labels on records that came from a place of like, you know, keeping kids safe. 
because what was also going on in the background was like concerns about like sexual lyrical content and that kind of thing. But also you have to remember the eighties was like the heyday of the so-called satanic panic. And people these days, I don't know what it was like in Canada, but in the States, kids who are younger than, you know, maybe 35, like have no context for this at all. But the idea that on the national news, there would be these stories of, you know, satanic cults, like stealing kids away and rituals and all this kind of stuff. Between that and the idea of people putting razor blades and apples at uh, Halloween, you just had all these like things that freaked everybody out. And I think that one of the results of that was that it's like, well, we've got to find like some kind of way of keeping our kids safe. And so the Christian music industry became like a way of selling itself along those lines that here we are in a Christian bookstore. And so there's like a, a tacit sense among parents who may not even be like strong, you know, believing kind of Christian type folks, but they may say, well, all I know is I don't want them listening to, you know, Ozzy Osbourne or whatever it was at the time. And so, you know, they make these deals where, okay, kids, we'll take you over here and you can buy anything in this store because there was this tacit assumption that that, that material was being vetted, uh, vetted for content and vetted for sort of safety, as it were, and that that was the instinct. I think that every generation has its thing. Like, when I was making my movie, I was sort of interested in, it's like, well, I hadn't heard about Satanism that much in the nightly news anymore. What happened to that? And um, so I, I have a subscription to a newspaper website that has created a database of newspapers from the past 150 years or so. And so I searched the words Satanic and Satanism and these kinds of things. And from the entire history, and it will show you a graph of the, the use of those words over time. And basically, it wasn't used at all until around the maybe a, like a blip in the late 60s and then into the 70s a little bit more. And then in the 1980s, oh my goodness, just skyrockets. And then between 2000 and 2010, it's like back to nothing again. It's really interesting, just like from a like cultural point of view, it's really interesting how that's no longer a thing that people are scared of in a real sense. It's like, you know, when I was a kid, everybody was scared of quicksand for some reason. I've never been around <laughs> quicksand. Like, what's that? <laughs> Women were afraid of ring around the collar. Like, there are the, like, these weird sort of things in the 1970s or 80s or whenever it is that people are scared of now it's you know who knows what it is it's um you know among like anti-vaxxers it's that it's like people are always wanting to wanting to keep their kids safe it comes from a good impulse um i trust that anti-vaxxers i don't know anything about vaccines like honestly i mean i assume that doctors are probably right about it but I absolutely understand the impulse of wanting to keep your kids safe. Like if there's some idea that you're allowing somebody to inject something that's going to do harm to your child, I totally get that concern. And similarly, I understand why parents in those days, if what they're seeing is like satanic cults and you know heavy metal is behind it all or whatever in the 1980s. I can absolutely see why parents would say you know what like i'm not going to study every album 
let's just let them get the records at Christian bookstores. So you have this set up, this sort of agreement set up between the parents and the and the uh, Christian bookstores that the stuff in there is safe. And then the next thing you know, like it's not Satanism, but next thing you know, luxury shows up. And the first, <laughs> the first uh, song on the first record is about a transgender kid without him dying in the end or repenting in the end. It, not because Lee didn't have a point of view, but because he didn't express the point. I mean, he just, he just made it a song with a question mark in it, which is what art does sometimes. Like it leaves you in a place that you don't know what to think. And these days it wouldn't be super controversial. I mean, it'd be, well, in Christian culture, it'd still be fairly controversial. But in those days, it's like not even a category for it. That's not something that even, even secular artists were talking about. That was it's, being way uh, ahead of the curve. Yeah, I would say so. So is it, is it the responsibility of a Christian artist to be safe for children? I would say no. Like I would say that certainly the, the Bible is full of stories that, that you wouldn't necessarily want your kids to read uh, for a variety of reasons. Or that you would be concerned about it, like feel like, boy, we really need to talk about this. This isn't like something that you go into without some serious thought about. But it's like, you know, like all of life isn't, you know, isn't safe. And so I think it's good for there to be some exposure there. And that's the role of the parent, not the artist.